No mai, haere mai, toti mai. Becky and I welcome you to our conversation here at the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. I'm Lynn Freeman, host of RNZ National's Art Show Standing Room Only. Uh, a couple of years ago, a mutual friend of ours sent me an email about a brand new novel by her journalist friend at the Westport newspaper. From memory, there was a photograph of you in the back of a car and cartons of books. Uh, the author was Becky Manawa too. Needless to say, I was very grateful to our friend Teresa for the tip. Reading the book ahead of our interview, I was gripped and astonished and heartbroken. I could list all Awe's qualities, and certainly judges and critics have done a very good job in assessing this important book's qualities. Becky is also, lucky Dunedin, this year's Robert Burns Fellow at the University of Otago. I believe it's rare for a writer to be offered this so early in their literary career, and that speaks volumes also in itself. Becky, we met in person in November at the paper, which was mm. just lovely to see you in your natural habitat <laughs> before you came to Dunedin for the fellowship. And you were kind of in the midst of logistics and how is this going to work and your whanau and your, and your job. How's it going? Kia ora, <laughs> Kia ora, everyone. Um, it's going, it's going um, amazingly. Yeah, I'm ruined for real life now. That's, <laughs> that's what I've, <laughs> I've figured mostly is that now I can't go back to... <laughs> Having a real routine, even though I've made sort of a routine for myself. Um, my kids have come down to Dunedin with me, and um, se- so my son's 17 and my daughter's um, 12. So that was a big ask of them, but they're um, really good at uh, adjusting. Well, I, I actually love your acknowledgements in Aoe, and I was rereading it today, and you thank the children mm. for the fact that th- there were sacrifices on their part, um, mm. for you to, to be able to write your novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah? yeah, yeah, they were. Um, my son got good at cooking eggs, yeah. <laughs> and um, they are amazingly um, interested in what I'm doing as well and supportive and, and love it in, a, in their own little way. It's, yeah, they're, they're, they're supportive and... Well, I, me- I remember watching the video of you when you won the, the um, Ockham and they had the Zoom. It was the mm. first time they tried to do Zoom. I can't say it went very smoothly, really, <laughs> for the award ceremony. Just as we came out of lockdown, you might remember. It was, it was quite yeah. funny and retrospective. But uh, your whole family, your whole whānau were around you and their faces just lit up. And to me, that was like the moment of the night. Yeah. That you were genuinely mm-hmm. uh, astonished and your, your family were just so happy for you. Yeah, they were. It was actually quite a hilarious scene if you had have seen a minute before that. So my dad was sat in one chair because we lived at my dad's place and my husband was actually further away from me and he, um, and so they announced it and my husband leaps out of the chair and he's like, yeah! And then he just, dad's already stood up ready to come over for the big hug as he should get the first hug. It's my dad. <laughs> but my husband, being a rugby player, somehow managed to sort of come in and <laughs> lift me up and, <laughs> yeah, so it was a bit... Was a little bit like almost awkward because I could see Dad being a, Dad was a bit pissed off about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you come? I imagine you did with a firm plan for what you wanted to write in this year in in Dunedin. 
Yes, because I'd already started. So I already knew what I wanted to um, work on, which is a second novel and connected to OE. So I had probably 30,000 words written when I arrived and I cut 20,000 words away pretty much the first day I got into the... So it was like I'd written to lead up to the point where I would um, actually start, but I knew what I was hoping to write. Hmm. This is, I, I, I know most um, authors hate it when people ask about a work that's in progress, but what, and we may, spoiler alert, um, have, have an insight into, into what you're writing, Becky, but, but what is the, the story? How, how linked is it to Owe? Um, it's one character, so um, Auntie Cat. I'm focusing from her uh, point of view, but that will bring in other characters, I feel like I have to write something connected to that novel because there was more work to do. And, and there are ways, as writers say, that sometimes you could never be finished, you know. Owe had a very long gestation with mm. you. And given that it's so of home and so close to you, I think you were overseas when you really first started thinking about it. Yeah. Sometimes distance helps you write about something. So being away from home, the distance made it easier I guess. So is the writing going well? I mean if your first if your first <laughs> effort was cutting out 20,000 <laughs> words, how's the word count looking? <laughs> um, I'm up to about 60,000 words. I'm sort of, I'm a writer that tells myself the story as I go so I may be, um, I'm sort of telling myself this story and it may lead me to the beginning. I don't, I don't like to where I should start from. At this stage, I wouldn't say that, oh, 60,000, I'm only a wee way off having a novel finished because I don't see, it doesn't feel like that. I really still feel at the beginning. So, so you, you're one of the writers who kind of lets things take a natural course and your characters work with you on the script. You're not one, I, I have been to some studios where it's, post-it notes and it's all mm. arrows and circles and it's all very planned from start to finish mm. and they, they get comfort and that is the best way for them to work. They know where they start, they know where they finish, even if they don't write it in that order. Yeah. It, it's not quite fully formed but it's sort of there. But for you, do, do you like to breathe, as you say, to just see what happens? I feel like if you were to write a novel knowing exactly what was going to happen, it would be like reading the novel of the movie you just watched, you know, like... To not know as part of the point of stories, and it's the same for for some writers, not all writers, but for me, it's part of um, enjoying story is to watch it happen and be surprised and let your characters um, do th sort of escape you a bit and then they're a bit ahead of you sometimes and then you're like, whoa. <laughs> What are you up to? <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I'm, I'm so pleased you're taking up Auntie Kat's story, actually, because, I mean, she was a strong presence in, in, in that first story, but she went through so much. Mm. And at the end of it, she's really going to have to almost start again, isn't she? She reconsider what's happened and, mm. and really catch her breath yeah. and figure things out. So, so she clearly demanded more time. Yeah. Auntie Cat in Owe was quite, um, she was silenced within this relationship. At the end, she's in a really 
hideous, grotesque sort of situation, and I just um, I want to give some context into how it got that far. Yeah, and um, let her speak a little bit more, because I mean, not a little bit. A lot more, yeah. I mean, it is difficult, and even from the media's point of view, sometimes there is very little sympathy. We get texts and emails when we do stories about battered women and and family violence and and a a lack of sympathy. Well, why the hell Mm. did she stay? Or why didn't she see? Sometimes Mm. it's not seeing. Mm. It's a defence mechanism. Yeah. And I remember even here with one of your other, with the other characters, one of the young women who's in an abusive relationship, saying, well, when he said sorry, that's the nearest thing to, mm. to love, you yeah. know, him showing and saying love. Mm. That really got me, that line, actually. Mm. It's complicated, isn't it? Yeah, it's never simple how, how people end up and women end up in situations that are um, like Auntie Cats. How, <coughs> how do you, when you're dealing with such deep emotional, I mean, trauma, I mean, the trauma throughout this book, how do you protect your yourself as a, um, as a writer? Because this, this comes from your heart. I know this comes from your heart. And we can cry and weep and, and worry reading it, but you've, you've written it. You've kind of lived it as you've written it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Mostly I think the movement from light to dark was my protection, yeah. There must be some of those chapters. Um, I mean, the, the uncle's actions, you know, we're being a little bit careful for those who haven't read fully, but, you know, that kind of brutality mm. and, and cruelty, you know, trying to describe that. Mm. I, I, I'm sure it must have taken some kind of toll, or not toll, but, you know, it must have impacted on you somewhere along the line, you know, those, those really bleak moments. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I really realised that until after, so I went into a bit of a downward crash afterwards so yeah but that's 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 what I what I mean I think that might have been what I meant when I said about it being kind of a a breath in and then this is hopefully a breath out the next book yeah I mean there's so much hope there too I mean Mm. don't get me wrong there is too um well look we were going to do a reading for you and we originally we were going to go from away, but we have something new. So from the new book that we were discussing, it's a draft, I mean, for context, it's yeah. an early draft? Early draft. Early draft. Very early draft. Work in progress. This is really exciting. I haven't seen it. I haven't heard it. I've never read it out loud either. <laughs> so <laughs> this is actually good for, for me, you know, this, I'm just practising. You could turn this into a, a writer's group, you this know, we could give you feedback if you like. The working title is Papahoa, which is the um, mountain range which is near where I grew up, but it's just a working title at this stage. It was not only pain or death the woman feared when she considered leaving the man, but being flayed for sport, being outed as not only flawed but hideously so, culpable even, having at her weakest moments survived a life by deriving some shameful pleasure and cruelty too not only feeling it, not only having wallowed in it, but having entered the hellish realm of active participation. It was fear of any one of her secrets, her many angsts and insecurities, the ugliness she had unwittingly revealed to this man, being used as a fuel which halted her, unpacked her bags for her. Together these were a perfectly crafted fuel, a singularly owned resource, packing enough heat to scorch her life to ash and crust and scar tissue, to smoke, 
A fire so hot it would burn anyone she loved, anything she cared for. More than pain, more than death, she feared the aftermath of that fire. She imagined a vast and scathing dryness. Cat could use a can opener, and even though the man, rather than she, is dead now, she does not. She uses a knife to open cans of tomatoes, peaches, creamed corn, baked beans. Sometimes the cans she needs the goods from have lids like Fresh Up, Fanta or Coke. These cans can be opened with a hooked finger and a quick peel of tin. Sometimes they can't, and she must use her knife. Today she takes up the serrated vegetable knife, ploughs it into the tin of peeled tomatoes, drags the toothy blade across, up, down, across, soaring a semicircle, folding upwards a half moon of ragged silver to find the red wet pulp beneath the torn tin. And the bright fruit suddenly makes her wonder how the inside of her wrist might look, despite having been happy, almost elated to be making bolognese for dinner when she first took up the small tool. She has used her knife rather than the proper utensil for opening cans since April 18, 1994, the day the now dearly departed Stuart Johnson threw the proper utensil across a kitchen, not directly at her, but also not not directly at her. It spun by her head, so close her temple felt like it puckered. Her brain shrunk away from the walls of her skull like half an orange having its juice squeezed from it. It shattered a glass window behind her to pieces. It exploded out into the day and the can opener landed in a patch of grass outside his house. After she moved her stuff in, it went from being his house to his house. She didn't know it was a can opener which tore by her skull until shortly before lunchtime. It was shortly before lunchtime when she made the choice to open a tin of creamed corn and make toasted semis for this man. She wanted to make things right. She was, after all, somewhat culpable. She searched the drawers for the can opener. She checked the sink, pot cupboard, junk drawer, even went to the shed and looked in the man's toolbox because he'd hidden her mascara there once, her F-post card another time, and her treasured photo of her dead brother another. But she did not find the utensil. Alone in the house, she ransacked the kitchen. So that day... A can of creamed corn before her, the window still smashed, letting in a cold autumn wind, she took up a serrated knife and drove it into the tin, and the tin turned to bone and the yellow mash inside turned to brains, and those brains were specifically the man's brains, and even when she had the tin open, she could not stop going at the matter. Then she threw the knife, made a fist, and thumped it. When he came in the door, into the kitchen, dirty boots still on his feet, she set the sammy on the table, and while he was... So I've, missed, I've, I've actually gone through a bit because I've missed the part where they, she toasted the sandwich. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to finish on a decent sentence. <laughs> but we could just leave it there. We can leave it there. Thank you. Yeah. That's a draft. Holy. What did you learn from writing Owe about the craft of writing a novel? I mean, you've got all the, you know, this experience in journalism, and we'll explore that in a, in a moment, but did you learn something of the, the novelist craft, do you think, from that first one? Because they say that the second book is the tough one. I've learned things, um, for sure, about the craft of novel writing. Um, I've, I felt more sure of myself and I don't feel as sure of myself now. 
and but that's okay because I'm still that's not a terribly sad thing because I'm still happy to write so writing's still okay <laughs> but it's probably a little bit surprising that I've lost some confidence <laughs> but just from reflecting on yeah storytelling and how important it is to um, be accurate and try and do well for people you're you're writing for. You're also in the situation of your debut novel being such a sensation you know it's almost unheard of not quite but almost unheard of to take out the top fiction prize as a first-time novelist and that the Nio Marsh you know and the, the accolades and the reviews I imagine that you, you're aware of expectations amongst us mm. being high because th this was such a thrill to read. But, of course, it's kind of on you. I mean, mm. do you think, it, it, in a way, it's a delight, I know, but maybe it's that bit harder because this was such a, a, a massive um, success? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think I'm definitely more aware of audience this time. So I wasn't as aware. I was just making myself feel better while writing. But I also wasn't sure that anyone would ever read it, you know. And now I know for for sure I will. My publisher will definitely read this. <laughs> you know, she's <laughs> she's going to read it, and um, I don't have to worry about that. And that's that's quite a nice thing. I love the description again and the acknowledgement that you hand delivered your manuscript for OA, that was really important to you. Why was it so important? Um, because I just wanted, I knew, I'm, I'm not a big fan of emailing. I, once I get to see someone, I just feel different about them. And um, I just thought, well, if I just email it, she might not remember me or care. And I was going to to Wellington anyway I couldn't remember I can't remember why but we were there so I, I thought I'll just drop it in I'll make her look at me <laughs> <laughs> success is is brilliant but the, it comes with it not not imposter syndrome perhaps but you know you've been struggling a little bit I think with with emotions I think the Nio Marsh or you weren't even expecting that you didn't see it as a crime novel no. you know which is a broad church mm. so how have you handled all that attention and analysis you know and focus and media events and things like that it could be overwhelming for a lot of people yeah in the beginning it was quite scary um because I still felt really attached to the novel like in a way that almost felt like if you criticize my work then you're back you it felt so I was afraid because I felt like I had folded parts of myself in it and and now there's some distance and I think I feel a little bit more um, relaxed about that. Um, what was the actual original question? Yeah, well, just, well, just <laughs> handling fame. I mean, actually handling that kind of attention, that kind of fame. Oh, I don't... That, it <laughs> kind of makes me want to laugh a little bit because uh, it's a healthy reaction. <laughs> my, I just don't feel like that's really true. <laughs> they keep you grounded. Well, it, I mean, it, it actually is. I mean, your your name was in highlights. You were all, you know, when the awards came out, you know, your name is known yeah. now. And I actually am on the back of a bus. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to hang.
hang out at the bus hub so we can see it because we haven't seen it yet. Someone said that, but I got sent a Snapchat from one of my friends and they were behind the bus and they saw it and there was my photo because the lovely Dunedin Writers Festival did that. But I now I need to find that bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, when uh, the book first came out, before the awards, were you reading the reviews? Are you a writer who reads reviews or doesn't read? Well, I, had, I, was, I was not a writer who knew anything about what, what you should do or what you shouldn't do, so I was definitely a writer who would read the reviews. <laughs> yeah, and I had some beautiful reviews, and yep, and... Uh, there was some fair criticism as well, and um, at first that was quite um, hard, like it was quite early, it felt early, it might may not have been, but um, like I said, I felt like my heart was still in the book or, you know, but I still look at that, I look at that now differently, and I feel like it was fair, and it's okay, and I'm not going to read reviews ever again. <laughs> I used to look at even Goodreads. I'm so ashamed about that. Like, don't do that if you ever write a book. Don't look at Goodreads. Oh, really? Like, they're f mostly, I've uh, not seen too many, anything bad, but I mean, it's just a weird thing, Goodreads, I think. Like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I've, over the years, there have been a, a few journalists who have uh, wanted to write the great New Zealand novel. I think even I dreamt of it very briefly years back. Uh, and they've been really well-written books, you know. I mean, do you think journalism has been a good um, background for you for writing a novel? I mean, it's, it's, people might think, oh, well, you're writing. Of course it is. But writing journalism is different to writing mm. a novel. You know, we're trained for different things. There's the inverted triangle, so editors can cut from the mm. wherever they want to. You know what I mean? It's, it, I, I think it's vastly different. How did you find it? So I have to make a confession that, I mean, people think that I have really this grand background in journalism, but it's not true. So... <laughs> I came to journalism with a full draft of Aware behind me and my family and I were moving back to Westport. I looked on the trade me to see what jobs were going in Westport and there was one at Stockton and there was one at the Westport News and I have no journalism training. So um, I hoped, I just thought I will make... I'll apply for that job because I can't drive a truck at Stockton. <laughs> so I applied for the job, and as it happens, Lee Scanlon, who's the chief reporter there, she's um, trained many a journalist, and she's also, that's how she entered journalism herself, by learning on the job. So I think that what it did for me more with writing Aware was that I was used to being edited by that you know, like, because I had this first draft already. And then it did help me in the process of doing my own second draft and my own third draft. Um, but I didn't come at it from a journalist point of view. So, so it's more like how writing a novel can help you become a journalist. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's, that's the way around. So my, my, um, my edit, uh, my, the chief reporter probably would say no. <laughs> no, she didn't, she, she had to, she had to work with me, you know. It was work for her, but she said I was all right at the end. 
<laughs> well, I mean, there's lots. I mean, the, your dialogue, I was rereading, just reminded me how, how spot on it is. And as journalists, of course, we're trained to listen to people, you know, and you, you talk to people from a whole range of of paths and of life, you know? And, and as a novelist, it's probably just something you already had. But how do you find the dialogue? Like when we were writing um, from Arama's uh, point of view, this insecure, lonely, we scrap of a chap, mm. you have his voice so well, you know? And it's not, the, it's not what you expect. It's not childish. It's not stereotypical. But it's, you can tell it's from that young perspective. And you use, even grammatically, he, he wouldn't speak perfectly. And I love that mm. you have that, mm. you know what I mean? You didn't edit it out mm. because that's how he would say things. Yeah. Yeah, I th well, I have kids. And I, I was thinking about, like, I still have all my stories from when I was a, a child. And I think reading them again, kind of, like, your thoughts are almost a little bit immortalised, you know? So I've got all the, this pile of books that I was writing little stories in and diaries from when I was young. I don't know if that's helpful, but sometimes I've thought that perhaps some of my thoughts were kind of held there because of that. And when you revisit, not that I'm Arama, but the helpfulness of knowing how a child thinks and talks and, yeah. And I don't use many big words in real life, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's so important because often that's where novels fall down and all of the characters speak in the same voice, mm. you know, mm. but your character, and you've got first person, of course, you know, mm. for two of them, so you have to, you have to have that teenager who's a bit of a lost soul and, you know, feels that he's abandoning his brother for the best reasons, and you've mm. got this wee fellow who just wants to put plasters on everybody yeah. to make them yeah. feel better, you know what I mean? So yeah. I, I think that was, um, do, you, do, you, do you think a lot about the dialogue and, you know, the first person and, and how things would be said? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, that was important to try and get them right and and differentiate the two of them well. Um, so I mean, I almost wanted to get to the point where I wouldn't have to put their names at the top of each chapter, but you would hope that someone could still tell who was speaking. But yeah, I mean, I didn't think about it much because I just wanted. I was just like I said, my characters were. I've, they felt very real to me. I was very sad when I finished. I was very heartbroken because I missed them. I missed being with them. And um, and you'd left some of them in a good place. You yeah. Know, like it would be having all after through the trauma, you mm. could see the light. You know, it really is a book of hope. Mm. There's a point at the end where the, some of them are, some of them, that's a good way to put it, some of them are together. And, and that was an important point to get to because, I mean, a lot of families do go through heartbreak and, yeah, I mean, things have happened within your family. And, I mean, this is no secret. You've spoken about it, that, you know, characters here based on um, members of your family. When you were writing OA or when you were about to publish it, did you talk to your family? I mean, how, how, did, you, how, how did you make it that they were part of this? Because it's a tough story that you're mm. telling. Um, yeah, I, I talked to them. And if anything, writing the book has drawn some of us closer. My family just knows how much I've always loved writing. They knew that was my obsession from when I was a little one. I, I have letters between me and my sisters, you know. I would write to them all the time, write, write letters to them when they moved away after I, when I was still um, 
too small to leave home. And um, yeah, and so they love me for what I've done with my writing, and they love me for the for 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 the the work that I've done. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? How uh, I mean, I work in, in news and. People can get so desensitised and unsympathetic to things. And it's another headline and it's another, you know, case of family abuse or another beaten wife or, you know what I mean? And they can, as I say, they can be really judgmental. Mm. But there's something I think that writers can do that, that burrows behind that facade, that the barrier that we put up and all the resentments. And I'm, I'm sure you didn't write this to change society, mm. but I think it's had a great impact as, as people read it and think about it and you force us to think about things that we might... It's like you know, seeing somebody homeless on, on the road. It's easy to turn away, isn't mm. it? It's easy to pretend they're not there. Mm. Um, but I, I think this is an important book for that reason as well, you know, shining a light in these dark areas that are very uncomfortable mm. to look at. And you must have had some extraordinary responses from people. Yeah, um, I have. I've had some... I've, I've had this one recent that was really lovely, um, and it wasn't an extraordinary response in any way, but I I was went on the... I was having a... I was flying to Tauranga, and... There was a woman beside me on the plane, and she was reading my book. And it was the first time that I saw that, uh, like a, a not not someone who was my family, reading it somewhere random. And I just was like, "Oh my god!" My heart was going so crazy. <laughs> and then I was like, "Should I tell her?" And then I said, "No, don't tell her now, because if she doesn't like the book, it's a really long flight." <laughs> <laughs> So I was, I was, um, I waited, and I, but I couldn't. I had my own book to read, but I couldn't concentrate because I was just like how, trying to grab a idea of what her expression was. Make like. sure she wasn't speed reading. No. Yeah, and and yeah. So I was <laughs> the whole time just. I did try and do a little like sneaky, but I didn't. I didn't. I thought that was rude. But anyway, so I'll just show you. So she was reading it, and then we went to land, and she, she put the book down in her lap. And then I was like, I'm going to tell her. <laughs> <laughs> so I went, I went, I wrote that. <laughs> That's really what I did, and I had the mask on my face. <laughs> and then I was like, do you want me to prove it? And, yeah, so exactly. my, and then, you yeah. also photo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I did tell her I was having quite a good hair day on that day, because I wasn't that the day that we were on the flight, but yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, it was like I'd never seen anyone out in the world reading it, and I just couldn't believe that she was right beside me. Yeah. Oh, that's a lovely story. Yeah. Have you had emails or texts or conversations at events like this where people have kind of come up to you at the end and, and said, that's that's my story or that's close to my story or yeah, I've had you understand, you know? I've had lots of people come up and say that they have they enjoyed the story so much that it was important to them. Um, I've had emails and um, I get quite a few messages through Facebook and um, Instagram and stuff from from people wanting to say how much they loved the book and how special it was to them. Yeah. Uh, do, do you hope that it is... is 
going to be part of what is necessary to, to change attitudes for us to be more understanding, you know, that some people are in an impossible situation. I mean, how can you... Did you talk to people who'd been in that scenario or or remember stories from the family? To, you know, because you write... Even that what you wrote, bef what you read before from your new book, that mm. that's incredibly powerful writing about a, an impossible situation that most of us would hope to never be in. Yeah. I have people very close to me that have, you know, been in situations like that and are in situations like this. So I can't say that I go around um, hoping that someone will tell me their... some stranger will tell me their story, is, is that I have enough people close to me that have suffered terribly. And most of us, most of you in this room also do. You know, you, I don't know whether everyone is aware of it or not, but, you know, most people have a family member or, or someone close to them that is suffering from something like, like domestic violence. It's it's so well hidden, isn't it? Why 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 this comes back to Fakamara shame we were talking about before, doesn't it? Often it's that people don't want to tell because they're too ashamed to mm. to admit it, and mm. that's how can we help them past that? You know? Yeah, it's. I think it's just important not to ever judge a situation. Um, I'm certainly not able to give advice on this sort of thing, but I just think it's um, it's such a complicated thing, and 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 if someone was to come to you and they needed a bed for the night and they were in a bad state, and the next day they're going back to that bad situation, you you just have to be kind of accepting of that. That's one of the things you know that you would never. Yeah, that's going a wee bit off track maybe, but that just because someone would leave for one night doesn't mean that they're going to leave forever. I'm going to divert as well. Just yeah. To, no, no, no. <laughs> but we've, we've, we've looked at that in, in a lot of depth. Because one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was the place of Te Reo Māori in your life, and I was reading an article where you were, you were saying that you... I wanted to get a description of your Maori English dictionary because <laughs> it's just—it's lovely. It's a lovely story, you know, mm. how you came to it. Yeah, I have this um, book that I tried to write as a child, and I was directly—I was using t um, this my Maori dictionary to directly translate words from English to Maori. And it, now, when I look at it, it doesn't. <laughs> Obviously, make any sense at all, um, yeah. And I had, but it it was it's cute. It's beautiful to have now. It makes me feel very good when I look at it because it just confirms to me that this has always been something that has been important to me. It's not, um, which is fine if you come come along later and then Te Reo Māori is l important to you later in life. That's also good, but. For me, I do feel a bit happy that from a child I I already wanted to be able to use te reo Māori. And I, I still struggle. Like, 
Um, of course, I'm not. I, I only have a few kupu. I only use them peppered. I don't have many sentences at all. But you know what I do have is important to me, and it always was. And with yeah. your with your own tamariki, with your own kids, are better. Yeah, yeah. are they? <laughs> yeah, they're good. <laughs> they really they correct me. Lots. <laughs> Uh, we, the, the festival circuit, I mean, of course, you're in huge demand with the success and interviews and journalists. You know, I think I've interviewed you at least twice um, over the time. Does that, after a while, I was just thinking about trying to study um, books that you love at university and sometimes when you analyse them and, you know, talk about them too much or think about them too much, some of the joy and the magic's kind of sucked out of them. Do you know what I mean? Did, did you find... How did you find getting the same questions from journalists over and over again and the same kind of things? Or, or did you, were you able to still love the book and, and not be too distracted by all the attention? Um, I feel like I've, I've separated a little bit from the book. And, um, and in the lead-up to something like this, I kind of feel just a bit nervous. And then I get here and I see all your lovely faces and it feels good. I feel happy here. But at the t same time, it's kind of like, oh. and afterwards I'll probably be like, oh my god, you just said so many stupid things, and I'll beat myself up about it. But, no, <laughs> don't you dare. but, um, but, yeah, I think every time, even if there's a couple of the same questions, every feeling is a bit different, and so far that's been true. Um, tonight reminds me that, of that because I was, I was thinking, oh gosh doing this again and I'm back to OE and now I feel a little bit of a new energy sitting here now so thank you. Oh <laughs> my pleasure. I mean I think sharing your new work that's why we started talking about the new because you, you, uh, when you're doing these sessions you're very aware of the fact that sometimes you're write, you're talking to a writer whose whose head is in a very different place you know the book we're talking about it had its origins a long mm. time ago and it's been out for a couple of years and it's very fresh and real to me mm. but you, you've you've moved not entirely on, but you're yeah. in a, a new section. So I think I think that you know that is you've got to be mindful of of where you're at and and your your head is firmly there. But it feels like the fellowships come at a good time mm, for you, and you can concentrate. Yeah, on it. It's an amazing fellowship. I just um yeah, like I said, I am really ruined for real life. I have a lovely office and um. Yeah, and the city's, uh, Dunedin's an amazing place. You guys are, s whoever's from Dunedin, you're real lucky. You're from yeah, Dunedin. Yeah, hell yeah. It's a cool place. Um, yeah, I'm having time to work and and I'm enjoying working. Yeah. Is you aim to finish the, the new novel by the end of the year? Is that where you're heading? Um, I would definitely have, my aim in the beginning was to have a second draft and I don't know how many drafts I'll need to go through with it. How many drafts are there? Uh, I th think like ten. Mm. <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard higher numbers than that. So, yeah, you know. well, I think every time, I, almost every time you change a sentence, it's almost really a new draft, sort of. But I don't know how people measure their new drafts really, because you're just kind of sliding over the whole thing again and again. So when I say a second draft, I mean probably. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know how people measure these drafts anyway, but True. it'll it'll get wrung out, and then I'll have I'll I'll probably expect another couple of years after that. I don't know. 
we can't wait that long. Just, just <laughs> saying. Well, look, I, I promised you um, faithfully time for your questions, and it's a, a wonderful opportunity, honestly. Um, this is what I do for a living, and I wouldn't want to do anything else, is to be able to talk to creative people um, about their work, people I admire. So please, um, we've got look, we're a hand up here already. <laughs> Fantastic. Hi there. I would love it if you could tell us um, just an overview of what happened between when you dropped your manuscript off in Wellington at the ladies office yeah um to when you were holding your book in your hand oh yeah <laughs> could you fill us in a little bit yep sure so I dropped it off and then I went to the pub nah <laughs> um <laughs> I dropped it off and then I um waited about I think it was around about a month and um, so Mary McCullum, my publisher, she said that she she did like it, but there was she had some issues with it. So I needed to work on those issues, and which she gave me some points. And I'm I'm not going to tell you what they were because then that makes me seem less magical. But um, <laughs> so I worked on those points, and then um, I tried to do it quite quickly so that she would know that I was willing to, like I was really enthusiastic to work on anything that she wanted me to. So I did it pretty quick, like within three weeks I'd worked them, worked on them. I sent it back, then she said that because it was quite soon after she had read it, she, she had a new reader read it, which was Renee. Um, yeah, so, and then Renee um, read the manuscript and she supported Mary and publishing it she thought perhaps this should be published <laughs> she was a good choice though wasn't she because she she has written so beautifully herself yes about yeah. women in peril you yes. know in their own home yeah so that was she was a match. fantastic yes. um yeah. and she sent me a, a wonderful some wonderful feedback as well so and after that oh sorry so then we get to that point where yes it's going to be published and then um it was it was at least a year of then working out doing editing, and then finally one day I had my book in my hand. And I was really doing editing right up to the very last week, almost was, week was that sati- Was that satisfying for you? I mean, did you feel that with every change you made it was improving, or was it, were you getting frustrated? You know what I mean? It's no, I could have done it forever. I really? could have. I actually, I loved, I was desperate to hold the book in my hand, but also, I think people often think of editing as being just this very boring sort of go through and make sure that the grammar's all right. And but that wasn't my focus. It was still really creative. There was real cr- creativity going on through the editing process. So it's not just boring stuff. <laughs> but, but, but it's oh, not also. always like that, though. I mean, I, I have talked to editors and to writers, and and every word is their baby, and they can fight. The editors every step of yeah, the way. Yeah. Thou shalt not pass. Thou shalt <laughs> not touch anything here. So I think that's if you entered into it with that that view, it probably was a great relation, a very important relationship, isn't it? Yeah. Between uh, a novelist, you know, a writer and an editor. Yeah, and if you've worked for Lee Scanlon, who was my chief <laughs> yeah. editor then, you, she was putting my work on the table in front of me with scrolls cut through it, and she was like, "So I read this in sentence and." <laughs> And so I, I was t- taught, you know, to really harden up to the fact that you don't write a book without an editor. You don't. Yeah, without that help and without 
yeah, no, 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 I don't think, that could be not right, but I don't think anyone writes a really good book without an editor's help. I had someone rip up my story in front of me in the 4ZB newsroom. <laughs> and they were junior to me. So really oh, nice. really? Yeah. I know. Oh, that's no, it's all right. rude. All right. I'm over it. <laughs> yeah, we've got some more, some more questions. We've got um, over here, please, and then one behind. So the lady in blue, and then one behind. Thank you. I just wondered what you do with your 20,000 words that you get rid of. Just could you give them away? Or? Like you, you want to have them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they would bore you to death. But um, I just actually just deleted them. Yeah. Yes, look that. Did you get that palpable? Oh, yeah. No. Ooh. Are they still on the hard drive of your computer somewhere? No, I deleted them. Oh, oh. yep. Ouch. All right. If they if they're that good, they'll come back. But I don't think they were. <laughs> Good question. Thank you. And I think it's back there. A woman respond on the plane. She was just like, really? And then I'm not going to, no, because that's weird if I make it. Like, she wasn't, she didn't make a big scene. She was just really like, wow. And then she did look at the photo and she made a little quick check. <laughs> And then I signed her book and we walked through um, the airport together and had a little corridor. Yeah. Yeah. I love that story. Yeah. Um, probably got time for one more question over here. Good evening. Thank you for Hello. this very forthcoming talk. Do you have any superstitions or rituals with your writing? Are there oh. things you do that oh. help you write or don't do when you write? I, I have. Um, so I say... Uh, I think since I have had the Robert Burns Fellowship, so I have a little bit more space. So writing is my everything. Whereas when I was writing earlier, it was more like get to the table, just get it in before, you know, after work. And and now I have more space. So in my um, office, I now, I have, I say a karakia when I get into my office. And I have my, I've put my pipiha at the top of my, first draft and I just I read that and I have um, so they're not and so they're not really but I don't really have any superstitions I don't think I feel like I want one now <laughs> <laughs> sorry if that's disappointing it, one will come to me in the middle of the night that I do have the superstition and I'm going to be gutted that I couldn't tell you but I think starting yeah. with a karakia is actually beautiful. Karakia, yeah. I have a karakia, which I say when I come into my office. So, yeah. Join me, if you would, in thanking um, Becky for uh, this wonderful hour. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, guys.